0: Welcome to the City Church Evansville podcast. My name is Sean Little. I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City. We're currently in a new series that's all about revival, entitled Catching Fire. Thus far, we've asked what is revival? Why do we need revival? And last week, we considered the first stage of revival. While there isn't a specific plan given to bring about revival, As we look to the scripture and throughout history, we can see a process that tends to precede revival. As we learned last week, the first stage is repentance. And today, Jeff Kincaid continues our series, Catching Fire, with the sermon entitled, The Second Stage of Revival. A few
1: weeks ago, I mentioned to you guys a phone that I'd, uh, I, I'd seen an advertisement for. It was called the Light Phone. You guys remember? Anybody remember me talking about the Light Phone? Yep. Um, imagine this. The Light Phone is just a phone. It's not a smartphone. Uh, there's no texting, no surfing the web, uh, no emails, no apps. It's just a phone. And the idea behind this phone is that while many people today do really genuinely need a smartphone for their work, it can begin, I don't know if you've noticed this, I have, it can begin to consume your life. So the makers of the light phone want you to turn your smartphone off at times, like in the evenings, perhaps, maybe days off, maybe uh, when you're on vacation, and forward your your calls to the light phone. Now, I was so intrigued by this and by the whole advertisement for it, I went out to their website, and I read what amounts to their manifesto and the whole thing was really i mean it was terrific but there was a part of it that seemed particularly relevant to what we're going to be talking about this morning in fact really to this entire series let me let me read this to you they said our phones have become our nervous habit our invisible crutch we find ourselves reaching for them without thinking have we forgotten the importance of solitude those precious conversations with ourselves are lost to our habit of pulling out a screen. We've become scared of boredom, scared of solitude. Our devices should serve, not enslave us. We don't want to buy more. We don't want to be told we're not enough to be tracked or reduced to some data point. We're humans, and we're taking our lives back. Much love, light. It's pretty good, huh? It's pretty relevant to where we are today. We're in a series of sermons that are, that's called Catching Fire, and I keep saying every single week that the idea behind this series is that the city of Evansville is in need of a spiritual awakening. But no such spiritual awakening can happen in the city of Evansville until the church in Evansville catches fire. So we've started talking as a church about revival, personal revival, uh, city church revival, A church revival throughout the city of Evansville that might lead to a spiritual awakening here in Evansville and beyond. But one thing is for sure as a result of studying the Bible and and studying the history of some of the great revivals uh, throughout history, one thing becomes abundantly clear. If it is true that, as the makers of the light phone suggest, we are afraid of solitude, if that's true, Revival will never happen until we develop a taste for solitude. Because all of the stages that biblically and historically tend to precede revival require a certain comfort with solitude. I want to show you that this morning. Do me a favor, and if you have a Bible with you, turn with me in it to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. It's the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, chapter 33. And we're going to pick off where we... Excuse me. We're going to pick up where we left off last week at verse 6. Exodus chapter 33, verse 6. And while you're turning, let me just give you a little uh, of the context. God has rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt by a series of miraculous uh, events. The people now are free, and God is leading them through Moses uh, to the land that he promised their ancestors long ago. But not long after being rescued, God summons Moses their leader, to meet with him at the top of Mount Sinai, where he's going to give Moses the Ten Commandments, and he's going to give him the rest of what becomes called the Mosaic Law for how the people of Israel are to live and to worship God. But while Moses is up there on the top of Mount Sinai, the people become very impatient, and they make for themselves an idol, a golden calf. And they declare that this golden calf is their God who rescued them from the Egyptians. It's a terrible sin against the God who has rescued Israel by his grace and his mercy. So God judges the people. And to their credit, they repent. And I want to take just a moment to look at verse 6 again. We looked at verse 6 last week, but I want to add something to what I said last week about repentance let's look at verse 6 of exodus chapter 33 so the israelites this is after god judges them all of that so the israelites stripped off their ornaments at mount horeb now last week we said that the first stage of revival is always repentance okay it's always repentance we said that these ornaments that the people stripped off were a sign of their repentance. They, the, the ornaments were actually jewelry. It was the very thing that they'd used to make the golden calf, the idol that they ended up worshiping. And by, by stripping themselves of these ornaments, they were repenting. They were saying, we don't, we don't want to have anything more to do with that. We don't want to be a part of worshiping an idol anymore, okay? What I want to add today, what I want you to understand is that idols are still exist today. Now, most of them aren't made out of gold or wood like they used to be. Most of our idols today are psychological. In revival, personal revival, or church-wide revival, it requires that we engage in regular and ruthless self-examination, allowing the Holy Spirit the opportunity to dig those idols out of our lives, to expose them to the light of day, and to tear them down through repentance. Now, you might be wondering, and if you're not wondering, I'm going to make you wonder, how in the world do I find out what the idols in my life are? Were you wondering that? Sure, that's what you were wondering, wasn't it? I'll give you the answer to the question. How do I find out what the idols in my life are? Well, I want to give you two ways so you can find it out. Here's the first ask yourself this what if i lost it would make me want to die like if i lost it if i knew i couldn't have it i just wouldn't i just wouldn't want to live what is that that that's an idol whatever that is or whoever that is we could be talking about any number of things here we could be we could be talking about your career We could be talking about your financial status. We could be talking about a specific relationship with an individual. We could be talking about the approval of someone. We could be talking about power and influence. We could be talking about an infinite number of things, really. What things, if you lost them, you wouldn't even want to live? Now, now you'll notice that in all of the things that I just mentioned, none of them are bad things in and of themselves. It's just that you have made them ultimate things. Like you've made them idols, you've made them your identity. So the first question is: What what things in my life, if I lost them, I wouldn't even want to live? Okay. And here's the second Here's the second way that you can figure out what your idols are. Okay. Trace your sins back to their source. So trace your sins back to their source. And let me let me show you what I mean by this with uh, with an example. I want you to imagine a woman whose idol is, she, she doesn't know it, but her idol is a happy, healthy family. Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting a happy, healthy family, is there? Nothing wrong with that at all. That's a good thing. But she doesn't just want it. Like, she has to have it. And so she controls every decision that her family makes. She becomes overly critical at times. She doesn't give her kids the chance to fail and to learn from failure. She chastises her husband too much. And when something does go wrong in the family, she tends to get hysterical and angry and depressed. She's been to the doctor a few times because she notices that she lives with an enormous amount of anxiety. And a Xanax every now and then, well, it's very helpful in the moment, but it doesn't cure the anxiety if she were to stop and think about her anxiety for a bit, she might realize that her anxiety, a sin, is a directional sign back to her idol, the very good thing that she has turned in to an ultimate thing. A happy, healthy family is a good thing, but if it becomes an ultimate thing, it will absolutely destroy your life because you think to yourself, I have to have this. It's imperative that I have this. If I don't have this, I don't even want to live anymore. And that is a panic attack waiting to happen. The directional sign to this woman's idol is anxiety. And if she can trace that back, she'll realize that a happy, healthy family has become, for her, an idol from which she needs to repent. But I can promise you something. Without being comfortable with and intentional about making time for solitude, being alone, turning everything and everyone else off, I can promise you that she will never be able to identify that idol that is driving her insane, let alone repent of it. The French mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal once wrote this. He said, all man's miseries derive from not being able to sit closely, excuse me, quietly. In a room alone, all man's miseries derive from not being able to sit quietly in a room alone. See, if you're going to experience personal revival, you're going to have to be intentional, countercultural about making time and space for regular self examination and repentance. You see, you become what you worship. And what you worship, those things that are your functional gods. I know, listen, I know that, that many of you here today would say, well, I worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that. I do too. But I, we all have idols in our lives. We all have functional gods. And what you worship, those things that are your functional gods, will ultimately destroy you. And we all have them. Okay? Your personal revival depends upon identifying what those idols are because repentance is always the first stage of revival. And you have to be comfortable with solitude. You have to be intentional about solitude to be able to figure out what those idols are. Okay, I want to move to the second stage of revival. Let's move on. I want to start reading in verse uh, 7. Exodus chapter 33, look ahead to verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, excuse me, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. You guys catching uh, anything repeating over and over here again? Yeah, the word tent. As Moses went into the tent... The pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to there. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the. Okay. If you're interested in experiencing personal revival and spiritual awakening in the city of Evansville, I want you to write this down. The second stage in preparing for revival is prayer. It's prayer. The second stage in preparing for revival is prayer. And I I want to explain where I see this. You may have noticed that in these verses, the Hebrew word for tent keeps coming up over and over and over again. In fact, 11 different times. And let me tell you, when you're reading the Bible, if one word just keeps getting repeated over and over and over again, it means that the author wants you to pay attention to that word. So let's look at this word. I want, you to, I want to understand this thing, uh, this tent that uh, Moses, the writer of this book, continues to tell us about. Okay? I don't want you to get this tent uh, of meaning confused with the tabernacle. Some of you know that later in Israel's history, they're going to build a portable uh, place of worship. And they call it the tabernacle. It's a, it in and of itself is a tent as well as some other things. But that's not what this is. That, that comes later. This is something altogether uh, different. This tent of meeting was a place for prayer, a place to go and to seek God. And as you may have noticed, in verses 9 and 11, they say as much that when Moses went to the tent, that God would speak with him there. Now, here's what intrigues me about this. This this was Moses' initiative to put this tent outside the camp. It was Moses' whole idea. There was no... Command from God that Moses set this tent up. Moses just wanted to do it. Now, remember what started this whole episode was that God had called Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai for a meeting, okay? But now notice, it's the other way around. Moses, in setting up this tent, is inviting God to come down the mountain, to meet with him. It's like what happened up there at the top of Mount Sinai so affected Moses. It so changed him that he doesn't want to leave it at the top of Mount Sinai. He wants more of it. And so he invites God to come down and meet with him, to fellowship with him, to talk with him, like a friend. Like a friend might ask another friend to have coffee or or to go to lunch. And I think that's intriguing because I think for most of us, the idea of prayer is sort of an obligation. Like we know, we know we're supposed to do it, but we kind of dread it. Either because we don't expect much out of it or because we feel, you know, unworthy. And so we go to prayer like we have to go to prayer. Rather like, you know, being summoned to the principal's office or something. We, we dread it. But that's not the case with Moses. He's the one that's doing the inviting here. And you have to think that when he he came up with this idea, and then when he's out there setting the tent up, and he's, he's driving in the tent pegs, or whatever they did back in the day to set a tent up, there had to be some question in his mind about whether God would accept this invitation. Like, would he end up just spending a bunch of time in his tent waiting for the God who never shows up? Or would God come down to Moses' tent? Sure enough, what happens is that God shows up. That's what this pillar of cloud is all about. It's a manifestation of His presence. That I don't, you know, pillar of cloud. That doesn't it doesn't strike any. That doesn't make me think of any particular thing. I can't figure out what that was. So I so I did some research. and And I want you to just imagine, that like you're driving down the road and someone's burning like 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 a huge pile uh, of leaves. And you know how like when you see that happen you, you, you see like the smoke coming up from it. It's rising. It's almost like a, it's almost like a column moving up from the fire. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay, good, good, good. That's what this would have looked like, like this, this big, like, it's like a column of fire. It's like a column that's rising from a fire. Only it's not smoke. It's a, it's a cloud. Okay. And it was a, it was a visible manifestation of God's presence. Now, when you think about your own attitude toward prayer, does it surprise you that Moses would take so much time and effort on his own initiative to create a place that he could, that he could meet with God? Does that surprise you? Because here's my question. What did Moses know that we don't know? What happened at the top of Mount Sinai that so affected Moses that he would want to pray to fellowship with God, that this wasn't just an obligation to him? Because I want that experience of God. That's what, that's what I'm longing for. The only way to explain what I think happened to Moses uh, is with an, an illustration. If you've ever had a boyfriend uh, or a girlfriend, do you remember what it was like uh, when you first met that person? Like you probably wanted him or you probably wanted her to like you. And my here, here's what I want to ask you. How much did you really let them know about the real you, like the real, real you, in your first conversation or on your first date? How much did you let them know? For instance, here's the thing. When I met my wife, I didn't tell her, look, I have absolutely no instinct or ability with tools. I didn't say, if you stick with me and you need something to be fixed around the house, you're probably gonna have to call a real man to come and fix it because I will be useless. The best I'll be able to do is hold the screws for the repairman. I did, I didn't, I did not tell her that. That's, the, that's not the stuff you tell someone up front. That's the kind of stuff that you just let gradually unfold over time. Like after you're married, when they can't leave, that's when you tell them that kind of stuff, right? And the reason is, the reason for that is that all of us have this profound God-given need to be wanted by someone. like Just to be wanted by someone. And yet we also have this terrible suspicion that if they really knew us, like if they knew... if they really knew, the, like the real, real you, that they wouldn't want you. And Moses is no different. When he goes up to the top of Mount Sinai, he meets someone for the very first time in his life who knows him better than he knows himself. God knows all of his character flaws. He knows the sickest and most disgusting thoughts that Moses has ever had. He knows Moses' murderous past. Some of you may not know that Moses was was a murderer in his past. He knows the worst things that Moses has ever done and all the things that he's done when no one else was around and he still desires friendship with Moses. And Moses is radically affected by that. Because he's never had that experience before. And he wants more. Now this is what revival is about, folks. It's about experiencing God in a way that changes us, that makes us want more. That, for instance, prayer becomes no longer a duty or or an obligation, but it becomes the highlight of your day. And then instead of having to set an alarm to remember to pray, you have to set an alarm to remember to stop praying because God's presence is so real and profound and refreshing to you that whether he answers your prayers in the way that he wants, in the way that you want him to answer them or not, that's not even the issue anymore. You just want more of his presence. God didn't have to tell Moses to set this up. Moses wanted more. And so he did it on his own. And I don't know if you noticed. But even the way the text reads. The way that it comes up in verse 7. It doesn't come up with any great ceremony. Moses didn't. It wasn't like any big, great ceremony about setting this tent up. There was no speech. There was no address. Moses didn't announce it to everyone in in Israel for weeks on end so that there would be a a huge crowd that would come to the prayer meeting. He set it up in in an unobtrusive and very quiet manner. Just one man going to pray. To pray for what? To pray for what? Pray for himself, I suspect, for his leadership, for God's wisdom and strength in his leadership. To pray for the people and their repentance. To pray for revival among the people of Israel. And what's fascinating to me is the effect that Moses going out to this tent to pray has on these people. Did you see that? Once these people see this manifestation of the presence of God at this tent, others begin to be moved to worship God too. Everyone, The text says everyone stood at the entrance to their own tent, and they worshiped too. Other people began to feel the same burden that Moses felt. It spread. It wasn't an organized thing. It was very organic. People saw something happening. They began to notice all the other people. In the camp, they're all standing at their their tents and they they all begin to worship and they notice all of this happening and and it just begins to happen organically. One man who felt a burden to pray began to pray and it changed Israel. Do you know that every great revival in the world has had the same kind of thing happening. One man or one woman who felt a burden to intentionally pray for revival, and then other people began to join organically. When we started this series, the very first week of the series, I was trying to sort of whet your appetite about uh, and for revival and spiritual awakening. And I told you about the first and the second great awakenings. In America, when large throngs of people all over America, and ultimately it spread uh, to uh, the rest of the world, large throngs of people began to sense their need for God and would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? There was also a third great awakening. On September 23rd, in 1857, there was this businessman he was just an ordinary businessman. Like he wasn't a pastor or a priest or anything like that, just a businessman. His name was Jeremy Lanfear, and he decided to hold a weekly prayer meeting on Fulton Street in you 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 probably won't believe this, but in New York City. In New York City. Lampfear again was, was a layman, no one, no one special, just an ordinary businessman, but he felt a burden to pray. And so he rented a hall on Fulton Street and he put out ads about the prayer meeting. And on the day of the prayer meeting. In New York City, only six people uh, showed up. Can you imagine how discouraging that must have been? Like New York City, you ought to be able to get a crowd of more than six people. Six people, that's all that showed up. But they kept praying. Those six people kept praying every week. By the third week, 40 people were attending. And and they decided, well, this is a big crowd of people. Uh, We got to start praying more. So they went to daily prayer meetings. On October the 10th, the stock market crashed. Hey, can I ask you a question? Do you think maybe, I don't know, do you think maybe that was an answer to their prayer for revival? I mean, it's a terrible thing, the stock market crashing, but what does it do? It creates, exactly, a sense of need. I don't know. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Jeremy Lanfair couldn't have predicted that. But within six months of starting that prayer uh, meeting, 10,000 people, six, one man, six people, 40 people, 10,000 people were gathering for prayer in New York City alone. And it began to spread to other cities in Chicago, in the Met- Metropolitan Theater in Chicago. It was filled every day with 2,000 praying people. In Louisville, several thousand people came uh, to be gathered for prayer each morning. 2,000 of people assembled for daily prayer in Cleveland. St. Louis churches were also filled for months at a time. News of the revival began to spread west by telegraph and other lay people in the west began to lead prayer meetings. That small prayer meeting that Jeremy Lanfear started led to the third great awakening, which spread to Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, all of Europe, South Africa, India, Australia, and the Pacific Islands. All classes of people, became interested in salvation. Conversions increased. Christians desired a deeper instruction in spiritual truths. Families began to establish uh, daily devotions. Entire communities uh, underwent a noticeable change. Preaching, which in many places had become just intellectual and lifeless, now concentrated on the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his cross. And it started, it all started as a result of one ordinary businessman Starting a prayer meeting. It wasn't pastors, it wasn't priests, it wasn't religious leaders, it was an ordinary businessman. And I want you to know that could happen today too. And you might be the catalyst. For it to happen, if it can be an ordinary businessman and not a a religious leader, it could just as easily be a stay-at-home mom, or a working single mom, or it could be a a teacher. It could be a lawyer. It could be a dentist. It could be anybody. But just like repentance. To start something like that, it begins with a comfort and an intentionality about solitude. Yes, absolutely. You could pray in your car on the way to work. Sure, that's. I think that's great. But if you make a steady diet of that, you will never experience the presence of God in a way that brings a powerful personal revival. That is going to require some intentionality to be countercultural to turn things off to get away by yourself to make some space and time and an environment in which you allow the holy spirit to search you and to dig out the idols that you're trusting in and to pray and to meet god and as one meets with a friend that will require some intentionality and a comfort with solitude one last thing that i i don't know if you noticed but in this passage, uh, the text goes to some trouble to make the point that this prayer tent was outside the camp. Like it wasn't in the middle of the camp of Israel. It was outside the camp. Now, what's the reason for that? Well, without a sacrificial system, which they did not have yet, a holy God couldn't dwell in the presence of an unholy people. Sin separates us from God. And the penalty for it is always death. And so for God to dwell inside the camp would endanger the lives of everybody there. And so any Israelite who wanted to seek God would have to remove himself from the camp, separate himself physically from the sinfulness of the camp, and to seek God on holy ground, this tent outside the camp. Now, I want you to fast forward a whole bunch of years to the moment that Jesus Christ is crucified on a Roman cross. The author of the book of Hebrews, looking back on that, says this. He says, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people Holy through his own blood. The tent you see. Pointed to Jesus death on the cross. Jesus became sin for us on the cross. And was himself separated from God the father. To make it possible for us to have fellowship with God. And so the cross becomes the holy ground at which we have access to the throne of God, where one who never sinned was separated from his father for the many who have sinned. And he, the Lord Jesus Christ, bore our disgrace on the cross so that we could experience the grace of the cross. And because of this, the author of the book of Hebrews also says this. He says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence because of what Jesus did. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, he says in Hebrews 4.16, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let me ask you something. Are you in a time of need? Do you feel that you are in need of a revival? I do. I absolutely feel that need. The author of Hebrews says, you can approach God with confidence. Knowing that you will receive mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need, Jeff. Let me ask you, anyone feel that America is in a time of need for revival? Anybody feel that? Raise your hand if you feel that. Yeah, you bet. I feel that too. Let me challenge you in two ways as you walk away from this this morning. The first is I want to challenge you to put up your own tent and by that, I just simply mean be intentional about making time and space and an environment for the solitude that you need to meet with God, to self-examine, and to pray. Don't do it out of obligation. Don't do it because you think, well, God will love me more if I don't, or if I do, and if I don't, he'll love me less. Don't. That's not even true. Out of love and appreciation for what he did for you in Christ and with a sense of expectancy, put up your own tent, whatever that looks like. Find time, find space in your schedule for solitude. An environment where you could just go turn everything off and be alone and meet with God and see if he doesn't show up. Okay. That's number one. Here's the second thing I'd like for you to do. You know, I, I believe that the, the message of revival and the need for revival needs to get outside of the walls of this place. For, so I want to just try this. It's kind of novel. I want to try this. How many of you are on Twitter? Raise your hand. If you're on Twitter, raise your hand. Okay. If you're not on Twitter, get on Twitter. Because you won't be able to do this if you don't get on Twitter. So please get on Twitter. But uh, for those of you who have Twitter, I want you to take something that you got out of this message today. That you felt like, you know, God was just speaking to you about. And I want you to tweet it to your followers today in 140 characters or less. And I want you to hashtag it EVV Catching Fire. Would you do that? It's pretty simple, right? Just take whatever you think you learned today, whatever God was speaking to you about, and you tweet it to your followers, 140 characters or less, and hashtag it EVV Catching Fire. The city needs revival. You need revival. I need revival. This church needs revival. The church in Evansville needs revival. Let's be a part of that. There's no reason it can't happen. Does anybody here, do you believe that God today in 2017 could bring the same kind of revival and spiritual awakening that he brought in the first, second, and third great awakening? Anybody believe that God could do that? Yeah, he could do it. Nothing is too difficult for him. He could do it today. He hasn't changed any from back then. He could do it today. Maybe you could be the person that is the catalyst for that. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, in this moment, just ask that you would make yourself through the Holy Spirit um, known Here, that you would be present here. The worst thing for us as a church would be to continue to go forward, like with everything we do, and you not be here. And so, Lord, as we sung earlier, we need you as a church, I need you as a man people here need you the people outside the walls of this place need you lord jesus would you bring a revival would you bring a spiritual awakening to this city and lord when when we go to meet with you would you make your presence when we go individually to meet with you would you make your presence known to us in those places in our own tents would you make your presence known Lord, as you, as you do, I pray that you would change us, that we would experience your presence and that it would make us want more, more of you. So Lord, we ask these things now in your name as we believe that you could do anything. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: Prayer, the second stage of revival. As Jeff mentioned, revival in Israel was preceded by the individual and undisclosed prayer of Moses. And each of the Great Awakenings were preceded by individual prayer. So, what does that mean for us today? What does that mean for you this week? You may very well be the catalyst for the next Great Awakening one America needs so desperately. Jesus, on His cross, suffered to make those who believe in Him holy and confidently capable of approaching God as a man approaches his friend. How would your prayers be affected if you believed that? Well, thank you again for tuning in to the City Church Evansville podcast. You can find out more about City Church at citychurchevv.com. And if you're in the area, please join us next Sunday at nine fifteen or 11 a.m. We're at 314 Market Street in downtown Evansville.